0: The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins, the money changers, and turned over their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Paul. And I'm glad we got the scripture reading straight. The one in the bulletin is from last week. And... uh, some of you may remember that, and others maybe not. But uh, thank you, Chancel Choir, for the beautiful anthem. And the swing and singing Seniors, they um, disembarked, but that's okay. They were here at 8.30, and uh, so um, they certainly are excused. And love that version of the song, he's got the whole world in his hands, talking about all kinds of critters and animals, and I'm a critter lover, so I, I love that song. What are we up to? That's our loosely organized theme for this Lenten season. We talked about that some last week. This is the third Sunday in Lent, Lent, and we find ourselves approaching uh, the halfway mark of this season. Ash Wednesday was the starting line. We thought about things like, what is the value of a bowl of ashes? What is the value of a human life? And then the first Sunday in Lent was Confirmation Sunday, and we confirmed eight amazing young folks. And then last Sunday, the two who couldn't be here on Confirmation Sunday, we confirmed. So it had been two great Sundays for our church. But on Confirmation Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, Andrew talked about building on a solid foundation, the wise man and the foolish man, the parable that was used. And the foundation of a life in Christ that's so important to the young folk who are being confirmed, but in reality, is important to all of us. Last Sunday was the second Sunday in Lent, and we talked about whose side are we on. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Whose side are we on? Whose name is emblazoned on the front of our jerseys? And for today, the story of Jesus cleaning house at the temple driving the retailers, the money changers out of the place. That phrase, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So we've talked about come up to a place of foundation for our faith. Take up your cross, tear this temple down and I'll raise it up in three days. Raise up is our thought for today. What are we up to? The story of the cleansing of the temple is located in, and obviously is important to all four of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John's Gospel highlights its theological significance by removing it from the logical place that we found it in the chronological place in the other Gospels. It's reasonable to assume that the synoptics, and the word means similar or side by side, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are very similar gospels. They have a the better location, it seems, for it comes toward the end of the gospel when the gathering opposition to Jesus is picking up steam. He's headed for his last weeks and the last days of his life and then developing that web of circumstances that led to his arrest and eventually to his death. Cleansing the temple, they say, was the last straw because it came near that time. But John lifts it up out of that context in a very real way, and he sets the account strangely and dramatically at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Upon the event itself, the fundamental issues at stake, by taking it out of a historical framework, so to speak, the writer is saying to the reader, to you and me, look, listen, pay attention to what's really going on here. And the the tie-in with Passover in John's gospel, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover feast three times. In the other gospels, it's like the whole story is moving toward that Passover passion account, that suffering and death. So there's some differences. John's gospel was, we believe, the last of the four to be written. Now, many scholars agree that the temple cleansing is a Passover story. It focuses upon Jesus' death and resurrection. The feeding of the multitudes, which prompts Jesus to preach about his body and blood, where he says, I'm the bread of life. That's also a Passover kind of story. John chapter 6, and in John 19, the account of Jesus' death as the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. So, when discussing Jesus' death and resurrection... John is not so much concerned with the causes of death at this point, what led to that. The cleansing of the temple caused his passion, his suffering and dying, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke for sure. But in this gospel, his death was not prompted by any set of circumstances, anything that happened so much as him being able and willing to lay down his life and take up his life again. It's as if he were in control and not others. In fact, even in today's story, Jesus says to the Jewish leadership, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. It's almost like, well, the verb is an imperative here. It's a command. It's not like he's saying destroy this temple and the circumstance, the reaction to that will be in three days I'll raise up. It was a command, and an imperative. Destroy this temple here. Here I am, destroy this temple. And in three days I'll raise it up. He commends... The events of his life in this direction, the work and the words of Jesus in John's gospel in response to who he is and and who's in charge, not human circumstances or human contingencies. As with his life, so with his death and resurrection, they're from heaven. John's gospel portrays Jesus as the Christ from above, the one who's in charge. Throughout the gospel, it comes up over and over again, even In that scene, the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, where his mother comes to him in distress, what are we going to do? They're out of wine. And Jesus said, my hour's not come. And he was in control. Even when talking to his mama, he was in charge. That's the way John's gospel would portray him. And the significance of Jesus' suffering and death in today's gospel lesson, what is that? He replaces the temple of stone and wood, mostly stone, with himself. He had revealed the divine glory by changing the water into wine. The jars that were there for the rituals of purification, he had changed into wine, better wine than they had before, an abundance of wine, and God's glory was revealed. And he called the temple my father's house. In verse 18 of the passage, the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, what sign can you show us that you're doing this? And in response to that request, Jesus gives the ultimate and the final sign is death and resurrection. Jesus would end religion or sought to end religion that sought to meet God through observances of ritual and following the law and following the customs and everything became so ritualized and laid out like a rule book. And now the temple has become an object of worship and is ripe for destruction. But the crucial question, why is the writer in John's gospel, what is John trying to say to the church through all these stories about cleansing the temple and destroying the temple and bringing it back? Why talk about something of another place and another time that no longer exists? The temple had been destroyed. Remember that John's gospel was written after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened sometime around 66 A.D. So the Jewish temple system, was the church to get an ego boost? It's as if the church were dancing over the grave of the temple system, and now we're better than that. But is that really what's being said here? If we're not careful, preaching and teaching and talking about stories from John's gospel can lead us to a kind of arrogance and even an anti-Judaism kind of thought. One can only conclude that the church being addressed there existed the clear danger, exhibited the clear danger of being enticed into the same thing, getting into the rituals and the policies and the procedures and all those kind of things that weigh us down and balk us down, moving into the same era that the temple system had moved into. With the passing of time, Christians tended to replace the old customs and old traditions and old rituals with new customs and traditions and rituals and old institutions with new ones. Not that the old ones were intrinsically evil, of course not. And not that ritual and places to worship are not essential, they are. That's important. But We need to be careful because as one writer said, within these ancient rituals and tradition, evil can lurk sometimes. Some folks will absolutize the rituals, the way they go about their faith, the way they worship, the places they worship and lose sight of the one to whom we witness. We need to be careful about what we make absolute and remember that Jesus is the only one that we worship absolutely. It's easy to get caught up in all of that and reading some in Richard Rohr. I've told you before about the the Catholic priest whose writings I read every day, who's into contemplative and meditative thought so much, talks about how the church began as a movement, a Jesus movement. And it was so exciting and it was so refreshing and it was so new. And somewhere along the way, the movement became a mission. And somewhere along the way, it all became mechanistic. And this is what we have to do. And this is the way we always do it. And this is where we do it. And we get so caught up in that that we miss the life, we miss the joy, we miss the presence of Jesus in in all of it. So hold that thought, if you will, and let's go back to the story itself a little bit, the story of the, the cleansing of the temple. Some concerns we don't need to overlook. And one of those is the importance of placing the scene in the temple in its proper historical and theological context. Cattle, sheep, and doves were required for the burnt offerings. Passover was a pilgrimage festival. That is, people traveled to be there. And traveling, they couldn't always bring with them the cattle and other animals that were required for the sacrifices. So they had to purchase those when they got there. And they would purchase those in the temple. And another thing that factored in here was that they had to convert the Roman and the Greek coins into temple currency, a Jewish currency. Because the Roman and the Greek coins had emperors and others on them. And the Jews believed strongly as in the commandments in making no graven image. So on their coinage, there were no animals, there were no emperors, there were no leaders. There were plants, there were trees, palm branches, and other things. And so they had to convert the coins before they could be used in the temple and therefore the money changers got involved and the sale of animals and all this was part of the proceeding of worship. This is an aside, but I I don't know that I could have been a part of that in that day. I've told you before I'm a critter lover, I'm especially a dog lover, but when you start talking about sacrificing animals as a part of worship, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that I could deal with that. But many of our Christian interpretations that see this story principally as um, extortionist practice of the Jewish temple disregard the realities of temple worship in Jesus' day. Some of this just happened. It was a part of things. There were inevitable abuses of that temple system. The poor were taken advantage of. And some things never change. But here Jesus confronts the system itself, not simply the abuses. He said, my father's house, my father's house has become a marketplace, a house of trade. But since the trade was necessary to maintain the temple system and the worship system, um, Jesus' charges a much more radical accusation in John's gospel than in the other three. He issues here a stern warning a powerful challenge to the way they were doing things. And they were so caught up in the tradition, they missed perhaps a fresh revelation from God. And another concern raised by this story has to do with the humanity of Jesus. This temple cleansing episode is popularly portrayed as a chance. Well, Jesus got angry. Therefore, Jesus is human. But that kind of story doesn't really fit in with John's gospel because John's gospel begins by saying, and the word became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth, the incarnation of Jesus. They didn't need these little episodes to say that, well, he turned over the tables, he ran the folks out with the whip, he got angry, he was human as well as divine. And that's really taking isolated incidents to prove something that really doesn't need proven. The deeper reality is the incarnation. God became flesh, human in Jesus, and lived among us. And so Jesus' humanity pervades everything he says and everything he does in his ministry. The scandal so much is not Jesus' anger as proving his humanity, but the authority this human being claims for himself through words and actions. A side note, and I think about this when I read this story every time I read it in any of the Gospels, about Jesus becoming angry. And it seems to me, maybe I've missed something, that every time Jesus became angry, it's because he witnessed someone else being oppressed or taken advantage of or abused. Jesus never got angry about what was happening to him but he got angry when he saw other people being hurt. And it causes me to take a hard look at my own life and think about what kind of things make me angry and how many things in this world I can just look the other way or go my own way or get so caught up in my own privilege in this life that others are hurting and I don't realize it. And Jesus got angry not when things didn't go well for him but when he witnessed others being harmed. Now back to the major emphasis. The far-reaching implications of Jesus' thoughts and his actions in the temple should caution us against developing a one-dimensional superiority complex because we are Christian folks and feeling like we're superior to to the Judaism that's talked about in this story. Jesus is not against the Judaism of his day per se. John presents Jesus as an observant Jew. He goes to the festivals, he goes to the feast, he's a part of what's going on, he observes the law. Jesus' challenge to the authority of the dominant religion of the day is not anti-Jewish because it's in line with the challenges of the prophets, like Amos and Jeremiah, when they criticized their people, when they criticized what was going on, they were not anti as much as they wanted things to be right. And like God wanted them to be, and they were voices for correction and improvement and change of direction. And Jesus certainly was in that prophetic tradition. Jesus challenges a religious system that is so embedded in its own rules and its own practices that it is no longer open to a fresh revelation from God. A temptation that exists for contemporary Christians, a temptation that exists for the church today, so caught up in our own way of doing things, so caught up in our buildings and our structure sometimes that we close ourselves off to a fresh revelation from God. And we need to be cautious, and sometimes we need to repent. Jesus' dramatic action in our story, through which a radical challenge came to the institutions of his day, I believe issue a similar challenge to the church today, to all of us. We must be willing to ask where and when the status quo of our religious practices has been so absolutized that we close ourselves to the possibility of reformation and change and renewal. The great dangers of the church, like the leaders of the religious establishment in the time of John's gospel, will fall into the trap of equating the authority of its own institutions with the presence of God. All religious institutional embeddedness, whether it's in the form of Jewish temple worship Or unjust social systems, or repressive religious practices is challenged by the revelation of God in Jesus Christ by his death and by his resurrection. So, what is the story about Jesus cleansing the temple and all that it has to say? What does it have to do with Noon and First United Methodist Church? Does it mean that we disassociate ourselves from anything that has to do with being an institution? And that would be a difficult trick to pull off, wouldn't it? In our Western traditions, we've always had our books of discipline and our standing rules of the annual conference and our directives from the district and our own policies and procedures, books full of them. Separate ourselves from all of that, not likely, but what if we work and study and worship, and above all else, pray. Pray that the institution that the church has become will reflect always the light and love of Jesus the Savior, even Christ our Lord. It's not all about our policies and our structures and our rules and our regulations. It's not all about our beautiful buildings, our temples. It is all about listening for the voice of the one who was raised up, the living temple, Bethel, house of God, even Jesus our Lord. Amen.